connection is the thing and a connection to other people connection to animals connection to things I, I don't much care connection to just connection please when i'm working with patients i you know find something to care about find something to feel connected to and it doesn't really much matter what it is From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nickel. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. BJ Miller. BJ is a practicing hospice and palliative care physician in San Francisco, an author and speaker best known for his TED Talk, What Really Matters at the End of Life. He's been on a teaching faculty at UCSF School of Medicine since 2007 and sees patients and caregivers through his online palliative care service, Metal Health. He's the subject of Netflix's Academy Award-nominated short documentary, Endgame, and his book for approaching the end of life, A Beginner's Guide to the End, was co-authored with Shoshana Berger and published in 2019. Whilst an undergrad at Princeton, he suffered a horrific injury resulting in the loss of three limbs. To many, this would have been calamitous. To BJ, it became a transformative moment of deep pain he harnessed to find purpose. Now, a quick word from today's show sponsor. When it comes to end-of-life care, most pets are still euthanized in the sterile and sometimes harsh clinical environment of the veterinary practice, which, while convenient for practitioners, is not ideal for pets and can result in as many as 20% of clients never returning to the clinic again due to the psychological trauma. Enter Lap of Love, a veterinary service working in partnership with veterinarians across America to offer incomparably compassionate end-of-life care experiences for pets in their own homes. Here's CEO Dr. Danny McVitie talking about a time when she was asked by a client to euthanize a family pet in his beloved swimming pool. So I had to get into the pool in order to be able to help this little guy pass away in the pool. I love that. I feel like it's exactly who we are and what we do. So if you want your clients to experience a beautiful end to their pet's life or learn more about how you can make the euthanasia experience better for your patients, then visit lapoflove.com and maybe you'll end up doing house calls in swimming pools too. Now back to the show. This interview ranks as a huge personal highlight and it could be so for all manner of reasons. BJ's inspirational story of overcoming incredible adversity, his dedication to a career making a massive difference, or his utterly genuine and radiant personality. But in my case, it's because of a single line he shared in his interview with Tim Ferriss, one that shaped my view of patient and client care forever. To learn more, listen on. In the interview, we cover a great many topics, but in particular death, mortality, and by unbreakable association, life itself. While some of the topics are confronting, it was both a comfort and pleasure to have BJ as my guide. So I hope you enjoy this uplifting conversation with the wonderful BJ Miller as he illuminates some of the darker places we fear to tread. So I'm super happy to be back with another episode of Blunt Dissection. I am in, I think this is the most stunning location that I have had the pleasure to visit and just to add even more amazement to the spectacle, an eagle just soared past the window. I don't, I don't think you saw that. An eagle just swooped right past. I don't know if that was like a drone that you set up. Nope. No, it's just part of living in paradise. Okay, so that wonderful voice is the voice of Dr. BJ Miller, or BJ, Yep, as we will all get to know him very soon, I'm certain. So, BJ, I haven't got loads of questions for you, but my first thing is just an observational thing. You make coffee in a very... Uh, methodical <laughs> manner, which mm-hmm. I've never seen before. 
Which actually is going to link into other question I thought to ask you before. Tell me about that. Where's, that's a very process driven thing you just did there. Well, uh, yeah, it is. No, I, and I'm usually a tea guy. I know you love tea too, Ooh. Dave. I mean, that's, I used to actually be in the tea business. That's a big passion of mine. So that's where I sort of got into ritualistically making things. So you're making a cup of tea, the whole process of it is part of the deal. And that's what kind of turned me on to the aesthetic of the ritual itself. And I guess I just carried over into coffee too. I'm a picky as hell eater. There's only so many things I like, but what I do like, I really like it a lot. And I like it a certain way. I get like, I'm a control freak about very few <laughs> things so that I can not worry about everything else. But the very few things are like tea and coffee and pizza. And there's certain things that just got to be a certain way for me. So do you make your own pizza or is there a specific thing? No, there I'm a connoisseur of restaurants. Okay. I was going to, and I ask simply because I, I was trained as a pizza chef and what is at university? So <laughs> I am, I'm also extremely like careful about where I'll eat pizza yeah. and I make the best pizza, you know, yeah. the other side of the pond. I bet you do. Without any doubt. It's all part about, it's right. That sort of carefulness about putting some love into it you know okay so so that's probably a great launch off point and perhaps we can talk about maybe we'll get to talking about your sort of past in a little second but where i first came across your work was on the tim ferris show and i'll start with the quote that really woke something in me and changed the way that i thought about people entering my business. I think we have a shared fascination about people. Mm -hmm. But you said, and I'm, I'm going to try really hard not to butcher this, but I'm probably going to. So it's when people are entering into the, it was the Zen Hospice Project. Okay, so you said when they enter, that the, it's the, the warm embrace of a familiar setting or a hug. And if, or maybe my mind just said, that feels like a big hug when they walk in. Yeah. And perhaps the, the first thing is, perhaps tell us what, the Zen Hospice Project was how you got involved with that. And there's a bigger background question on your professional history, of mm -hmm. course, but you can, you can take a, a nibble at that and sure. launch from wherever you like. Yeah, sure. I mean, so the Zen Hospice Project, it started in 1986 or 87, I think. And it was in the wake of the AIDS crisis here in San Francisco, sort of ground zero for the AIDS crisis globally. And as you probably remember, you know, medicine was falling on its face spectacularly, failing the community it was, it was sworn to serve. And it was a scary time. I don't mean to judge from here, but it, just to say that one of the things that happened, at least in the Bay Area and maybe everywhere, was people stopped relying on the institutional systems and started doing their own thing because they had to. Right. And one of those, you know, so this was a good example. So people were dying you know all over the place and people were being disowned by families and friends and I mean, effectively quarantined etc and so people were just ending up on doorsteps of religious organizations as places that maybe would take them in and so the zen the san francisco zen centers right downtown the city saw this happening and had this old victorian house and decided to repurpose it to be a hospice house to take people in and also, also admittedly to as a practice setting for their, I was going to say church, it's not quite right, but for their community. As a, as a being with dying is a very potent exercise uh, period, but certainly in the Buddhist tradition, that seems to be very important. 
So here they just sort of had this living laboratory and they decided to purpose it in this direction. So that's way back when that the organization was thrived in many ways and grew in all sorts of directions. And then I, I jumped in, they had to close the house down at some point to bring it up to code. And a lot of these things were happening under the radar, as was right. the case. There was no license to Zen Hospice at some time. This is this was part of the MO back then. It was also a part of a point in pride that this was hospice had a kind of a countercultural root to it. And so there was a lot of reasons that everyone was enjoying this sort of unofficial kind of we're gonna make it our own way kind yep. of deal. And there was a lot of beauty that came out of that. But anyway, I jumped in when the house was reopening. The board had decided to bring it up to code and get a license and do all the official stuff. So I jumped in in 2011, right when it was reopening. And I worked there for five years. And one of the reasons I took that job, I came out of UCSF, full-time academic clinical medicine. I'd always been interested in the community and getting out of the big four walls of the academic institution. I knew a lot of the, a lot of the power was out in the community. I mean, by power, I mean a lot of the juice, a lot of the energy, a lot of the action. Right. And, and it was much more welcoming. The community just does things differently. In academic places, you got the hierarchy is so, you know, so entrenched. So anyways, there was freedom to getting out of there. All right. So I jumped in for, I, I guess I should be, watch. I could go on and on about this. But I jumped in for a couple of reasons. Basically, wanted to get out in the community for all sorts of reasons, let's just say. And then the other was specific to Zen Hospice. I was very attracted to this place. I had heard about this place when I was a medical student. And so, in this mission, here was an organization approaching the subject matter that I was approaching from a medical point of view. And they were saying, hey, you know, dying is basically not a medical event. Or better to say, it's not just a medical event, it's right. certainly become a medical event. Yes. And so here's an organization that was rooting itself in volunteerism, in spirituality, in humanism. And that seemed like a much better basis to operate from than, say, medical science as a foundation. I mean, you can, you can add medic medicine on top of that. But if you have your root in humanism and humans doing human things and compassion and spirituality, I think you're just going to get to a different place. And so, so they did. So that was one reason I took the job. The other one was that it had a house. It had I'm very, very interested in architecture and design and the environment of care and how we play with the material world and how it affects our experience. And so I was very attracted to the house itself. And I think you're referring to this the, the feeling that everyone gets when they walk into Zen Hospice Project. And it's nothing I did. The place predates me. And it's always done this kind of work. There's something about the house. There's something about the vibe. There's something about the staff and volunteers, the whole ethos. When you walk into that house, you know, you can just watch people's blood pressure settle. You can watch them relax. You can watch blood return to their face. It happens every time. And it's almost immediate the second you walk in the door, whether it's the smells coming out of the kitchen or the old beautiful uh, woodwork in the house, whatever it is. Or the fact, maybe it's something that the foil is, it's its just not a hospital, it's not a nursing home, and that's what feels so good. It feels like this was this gift in your in your lap for a while, yours to be the trustee of for a little little period. Sounds like that's mm -hmm. more the language that's appropriate than, than being yeah. the, the boss, as it were. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely right. Did that vibe come from, culture often comes from the people. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, as the leader coming in, you know, you were taking over almost a legacy and you're very conscious of that. Did you have a, a mission? Like, where did you want to take that? What was your plan for the time? Was it five years? As, as I was there five director? years. Yeah. 2011 to 2016. 
Yeah, there's a much to say about this. So, the, you know, again, the house had been closed. The organization continued on. And now, by the way, to jump to a punchline, the house, they had to close it again. And this time they had to sell it. They had taken on debt. And so that house no longer exists as Zen Hospice. I was going to ask that. So Zen Hospice Project now is a Zen Caregiver Project and reflecting their now commitment to being an educational organization. So right. they train people to sit at the bedside with folks. So they've pivoted away from that to yeah. more. And in a way, it's not a pivot though, David. In a way, like the mission really was mostly about in a way, training, uh, whether it's a spiritual training training or a practical training, however you want to size it up, that was really the root of it all along. The house was sort of the practice setting. Uh, and it was also, they also, and they still do staff Laguna Honda's a hospice ward with volunteers. And Laguna Honda is San Francisco County's sort of safety net facility. So there is still there is still a launch pad to get from Zen to Zen Caregiver Project in at to, to the bedside at Laguna Honda, and that had always been the case too. But suffice it to say that the organization was really first and foremost an educational organization, and so that's the part they've retained. They had to sell the house, let it go, and that's probably all right. Everything's all everything's okay. It was not that house, even when at the peak of its attention, it was always a grind to keep that house open. Because it's not covered by insurance, the costs are uh, are impressive, and so there's you know we could go on and on about that those stressors. Yeah, but let me just say back to your question. Yeah, so I was stepping into something to steward, but it was a rocky thing. It had this sheen around it. The care that was delivered there was exquisite, but it was also a troubled organization. Again, the house had just been closed. They didn't really were they a Zen organization or were they trying to be a more secular, open organization? It had some questions that it had an, had not answered. Yeah, and when I stepped in as a, a with an MD behind my name, I thought that would be a good thing, but I was quickly met with some uh, a lot of suspicion. I take it for granted. I think healthcare in this country is all screwed up, but in, in the world of hospice and palliative care, we sort of that's that's where we start. In some ways, our first patient is the healthcare system. Right. There was no arguing with me that the healthcare, the medicine had a problem and it got a lot of things wrong. But just in my person, I represented that industry. Even somebody as soft and with that yeah. sort of mindset, which yeah. is such deep-rooted yeah. mistrust. Yes. So it was very interesting winding my way into that organization. Were you able to overcome that and and build a yeah. bridge as it were yeah i think in many ways yes to some degree yes i mean so you ask about my the vision so when i i approached the board they weren't looking for a medical doctor to run the place i approached them and simply said look what you guys do here is too beautiful to keep to yourselves the world needs this message the world needs this training the world needs these kinds of places i still feel that way very very strongly and because the organization was opening the house without a plan to sustain it we needed some sort of, we couldn't keep doing it the old way. It was just too, it was cost prohibitive. So my vision essentially was trying to open the place up to run with the piece of it that wanted to be open. It, you know, not everyone who worked there was Zen practitioner, myself included, but we wanted to be true to the principles, whatever the dogma, whatever the language you gave it, the principles were clear that suffering is elemental, that we are all mortal, and that running away from suffering is where things get worse. And if you can learn and train yourself to be with things that you can't change, you will be better for it, and the people you serve will be better for it. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack right there. That's probably the rest of the interview right there. So it's almost running toward the sound of 
gunfire mm-hmm. a little bit, spiritual mm-hmm. gunfire. Yeah. My first question is, and watching Endgame on Netflix, mm-hmm. watching your TED Talk, you never mention it directly. But one of the questions that came up in my curiosity was, and I saw it in the imagery of the movie, and that may be a production-based thing rather than mm-hmm. a you know BJ-based thing. There's something, even in the short time that we spent in each other's company, there's something calming about mm. your person mm. when you speak. You know, and TED Talks are always, you know, I'm sure not the most entirely, you know, there's some, something of the artifice about mm-hmm. the, the oh, whole thing. Sure. Yeah. But even then it was still very measured, but calm. I think that's probably the word. The question that came up inside of me was, is BJ a spiritual person? Mm. And if so, you know, tell me more, tell me more about that. Mm. I, I think so. <laughs> you know, I think that I fight with words a lot. You know, I, I really struggle with words. I'm commitment phobic. So, you know, like I don't want to pick a word because then I have to, then I'm not choosing a gazillion other words. Got it. But if I'm pushed, I must say that if spirituality, I guess we should define spirituality. So for me, if spirituality, if what you mean, Dave, is that you operate with, from a belief that you can't necessarily see and prove all the time, that you have a belief of some amount of faith that we are all connected and we are all yeah. interdependent and that forces outside of ourselves, much bigger than ourselves, that we can't see, not necessarily even feel, are at play, that when we are not alone. So if that's what you mean by spirituality, I certainly ascribe to that. And I don't be it, buy be it in the universe, this. God, whatever name yeah. you wish to put on there. Yahweh, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's something large, generative, and something that would probably be unfathomable to us, at least at this stage in our development, yep. is at play. And that's as much as I could say, but that these unseen forces are powerful. And I choose to believe, um, if I have to give them an affect, Something seems very beautiful about it. You know, I still, I get quite a rise looking up into the night sky every night. You know, just basic, just pondering space and time. And so I guess for me, spirituality is a belief in connectivity and a choice of curiosity to lean into mystery, to embrace and feel part of it rather than it's a frightful thing that's out to get us. Right. And that sort of then leads neatly into the, the things that we perceive to be frightful and, mm-hmm. and are out to get us. And I'm guessing that death is chief among those. Uh-huh. <laughs> We've got, we, we are. <laughs> you might hear Maisie. Maisie is, I'd say Maisie is just the most beautiful <laughs> German shepherd cross pit bull. Yeah. BJ's dog and she's gorgeous and she's going to defend us against the invading <laughs> work teams that may arrive here. So if there's a bit of barking, luckily it's a veterinary audience, so they'll just love that. Like, they're not going to love you anyway. They're like, you've got a gorgeous dog. So, Where does your fascination, and I instantly dislike that I used that word, but your relationship with death, because it's it's a professional thing. Mm -hmm. It's not just an abstract, hey, I think about this and worry about it a bit. No, you're up close and personal with this. But in a number, like in a very nuanced, from the incredibly subtle to the punch you in the face, like, Talk us through that relationship with death. I think this is pivotal to your story. Yeah, well, so for me, I got acquainted with my own mortality. I mean, I think most of us know we die. 
Okay, but it remains an abstract thought <laughs> for a very it. long time, you know, and therefore you, you know, sometimes you, you get the sense of wondering if it's optional or real, and you just find yourself magically thinking it away. A lot of people do, a lot of us do, maybe all of us at some point. And so, like, right, I knew we were moral, okay, blah, 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 fine. But I was 19, and then when I got injured in electrical burns in college, sophomore year of college, then I came very, very close to death, and you know, for a couple months on end, it was pretty touch and go. So that was my introduction to like death and the viscera. Like my body knew death. It wasn't an idea. No, it moved quickly from the abstraction yeah. to the, the real. How close did you come? Well, I mean, who knows really, of course, but I mean, that nine is 11,000 volts, enough power to move a, a train went through my body. And, you know, for the first, I don't know how many weeks, maybe month or so, the, the burn unit, the surgeon would often tell my parents, you know, like, you know, basically we'll see if he's here in the morning kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and there was a series of surgeries and it was just very tricky. But it, interestingly, Dave, I, I only learned that I had almost or had come very close to death after the fact of how close I had come. What was interesting to reflect on for me was that I was conscious. Sure, I was medicated, but to some degree, but I was conscious. And I don't know if my brain was a shutdown in denial about it or whatever else, or if my brain had knew better, if I knew that I was actually going to survive and therefore wasn't worried about it. But one way or another, I watched a very seamless relationship between being alive and being dead play out in myself. And it was remarkably unremarkable. It was very ordinary. And it was catalyzed an experience I had, and I talk about in the TED Talk, with, a, with someone who smuggled some snow into the burn unit. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And just I mean, the, the whole subterfuge of smuggling snow into a burn unit was awesome and wonderful, and my friend Pete did this, and he was beautiful for doing it. But he knew, I guess intuitively or whatever, he knew a burn unit, you know, you're just, you are, it is the least natural environment in the world. You are isolated from everything, everything. everyone. You know, one person at a time can come in your room. They're all gowned up. There's gloves, masks, everything. So, so to have a piece of nature to be able to touch it, there was no window in my room, nothing. I'm sitting there watching the first Gulf War play out on TV, sitting in bed, bored, stiff. And yeah. so finally I could touch a little piece of nature. And it was, it was, there was a rapture to it. And it was so simple, just feeling the snow, feeling the cold, and then feeling it melt and feeling it be water and feeling my body warm the water. And it wasn't a thought. It was just a... What was delivered to me in that moment, and in many moments, I don't mean to make it so dramatic, but there were many moments like that along the way. What was delivered unto me was this very plain relationship between life and death, and that we're constantly moving around around that death is all over the place, and that there's not much difference between death and loss and change. These are all related. Had you jumped from, you know, the, the intensity of what you'd been through, it almost sounds like it propelled you through a place of contemplation about the fear of the unknown to yeah. bam it's yeah. there yeah so what next yeah what is the well i guess the the next thing is what did you or what from your experience were you able to draw that that really what did you learn about living from your experience with death well one is just the very i think the some of the more obvious things and i see this play out all the time is when you go from that when you when you have your what I call this cosmic spanking, when you, the abstraction goes you know, to real and you're like, oh, right, I, right, this does end. I do die. I, you know, that's not just an idea. When you get that into your bones, 
one of the upshots of that, and one of the reasons why I'm so interested in talking about it, death, is not to be morbid, but because it's very enlivening. Because once you really grasp that your time in this body, in this life, is limited, then you take it a little more seriously. And then how you spend your time really, really matters. If you have a finite amount of time, it's just this almost basic economics. So one fallout is that you you can live with a little bit more urgency. And for some folks, some of us and respond by, you know, the, the the fabled bucket list. Like, okay, now that I realize that time is short, now I gotta now I gotta think about what matters and I'm gonna really focus on doing those things. Screw everything else. Right? There's just this focus that you get and you get this purpose driven kind of drive to cram as much in or whatever while you can. Okay, that's one sort of, in, you know, you're sort of... It's in, like the procrastinator's end-of-life solution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very, exactly. It's like, right. And then there's another approach, which is sort of, and I saw someone, someone gave a TED Talk on this, and I don't remember what they called it, but basically the thing was a fuck it list. Like, you know, like he came close to death, and his response was like, I don't have any, everything doesn't matter. I'm just going like free balling you know i don't I'm really already all in for this list this <laughs> yeah, a great list. it's a great list i loved it and because otherwise i think a lot of the messages oh now i know i'm gonna die i'm gonna get really serious i'm gonna really focus and, and okay maybe they're sure that's cool do that but i also love the other effect which is forgiveness like you're not going to get to everything you want to do in this life and there's a developmental aspect of coming to terms with that and with that there's some pain and sorrow but there also can be a real letting go and eventually what if i things if the things go well you start seeing yourself in the world outside of yourself you start touching into things beyond your own life yeah you come to terms with the fact that you're mortal your time is short you're gonna die but life's gonna keep going mm. and so you find yourself invested in a tree outside your house or mm. a dog that walks by or a stranger on the street you start tapping into this connection that we all have and the true immortality that that's before us it's a choice is is our emotional residue, how we affect each other. Getting outside of ourselves and beyond ourselves becomes developmental and very exciting and also a salve for the fear that death can bring. And purposeful. Like now you're actively thinking, and this takes me to, in your book, the When I Die file, mm -hmm. which I thought was one of the most powerful things. Mm -hmm. And it catalyzed me to, I'd started writing notes for my seven-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. Just like little life lessons. I'm like, here, this is how I fucked up. Don't do this. Mm -hmm. Like, you're, like you're probably finding a million other ways to fuck up, but just mm -hmm. don't do this one. Mm -hmm. And I wrote something out about love, and I found myself weeping like a, like just <laughs> sobbing, like ugly, ugly sort of sobbing mm -hmm. quietly. Let's see, with beauty, mm -hmm. not with sadness. Um, and it was such a a touching thing to do. So there's a pur purposefulness to that. What emotions? seem to cause us pain and i guess that some of the i mean that's maybe not some of it it's maybe all of it when you're running towards the sound of the, the gunfire mm -hmm. the tough mm -hmm. stuff your experience i'm curious about where the emotional fortitude in you comes from was it there was it cultured and i'm curious because there's so many people seem to me to be i don't want to use I mean, broken is a kind of word, but lack the resilience that today or yesterday seemed to be present. How do you, or how have you, I suppose everyone has to do this themselves, right? But how have you coped? Because you've 
like people in my world have a bad day at the office or a client's a little bit mean to them. And, you know, now they're all clients are assholes. You lost three limbs as a young man, I'm sure with lots of dreams and hopes and all of those things. That's a heck of a thing. Much more than most of us will, will overcome in the physical sense. And I'm not, I don't want to belittle, I'm sure lots of people having very tough other things to deal with. But how did you overcome that? Like what was the, the process sounds like glib. I'm sure it wasn't necessarily an organic, hey, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. But how did you get through that? And, and how has that served you? And what lessons are there for us all in that process? Well, I mean, and thank you for pointing. I mean, my these obvious losses that we're talking about are dramatic and obvious, but there are variations on themes that we all have. And I just watched myself. I like to say, like, I have cried as much over lost wallets and car keys as I have limbs. Like, I just, there's, I, so I generalize. One of the first things I learned to do was because disability can be fetishized and people can pity you mm. and accidentally sort of pull you out of the flow of life and it can isolate you by calling you special. And yep. it's a real minefield. And I thankfully to my mother, I had learned about her disability rights stuff. My mom had polio. And I knew a little bit about a framework to, to conceive of disability. So we can talk about that. But just to say that part of the one decision I did make early on that seemed really important was to not buy into the line that I was special per se. Rather, because I would be buying into a life of isolation. Right. And so basically, the idea was, well, that this is a variation on, variation on theme, that we all lose things, we all suffer. And therefore, this became a connecting device rather than an isolating device. To other people. To other people. other had also lost. And which ends up being everyone. Right. You know, that's not just other amputees or other folks in a rehab center. Literally everyone. And there's something very beautiful about, I mean, you have to be careful and not overlove your misery, but sorrow is a universal and loss is a universal and, and it's also a shamed one and a hidden one. And so if you can kind of be out with your own and wear it on your sleeve, like those of us with visible disabilities kind of have to, yep. you know, then all of a sudden this thing that is a source of pain and can be a source of isolation, all of a sudden becomes a point of connection. And that was very, very powerful. That was a hugely powerful choice, and that has served me very well. It's like vulnerability and empathy yes. meeting and yes. creating something special. Yes, and speaking of vulnerability, that's the other thing, is you start realizing vulnerability is strength. You know, In other words, to think of something invulnerable, like a superhero or a, you know, let's just say a, you know, a stone, a big piece of stone, you can't prize stone for being immovable. It's just stone. It's inert, you know, or a superhero who can't be weak. That's not very strong. Uh, well, to me, a strength is someone who can be vulnerable, can be very fragile and can withstand it, can still hang in there and can be themselves through that. To me, that's actual strength. Invulnerability is not very strong. If you don't have the capacity to fall apart, then the fact that you don't fall apart is not very impressive. Right. So does that make some sense? It does. It makes a lot of sense. So seeing and flipping this, seeing strength and vulnerability and connection and the things that otherwise isolate you, these are the inversion moments that have happened and have been very powerful for me. I think you probably get interviewed enough about the big thing. What are your subsequent 
if, if I've observed anything about life, that it constantly throws up opportunities for failure and <laughs> growth and learning. Have you had any more subsequent, like, fun failures, if that's right? Like ones that you can look back now and go, hey, it's like, we'll laugh about this in five years over a beer, but right now I am in deepest shit and I have no idea what to do. Yeah, I mean, yes, the answer is resounding yes. I'm just trying to think if there's any one or two examples that pop <laughs> Don't out. Don't throw and yourself all, under a bus. They're all, they're all over the place. I mean, that was one of the cruel lessons. I remember coming out of the hospital and rehab, I sort of absorbed a sense that, oh, well, now this shit's happened. And the good news here is like, how much worse can I be? Like I might, you know, now, now, now I've kind of had my dose of hard times. So now I'm good for a while. I don't know why the hell I got seduced into thinking that like I was done with the heartache or loss. Yeah. Um, of course you're not. In fact, you're just in line for more of it. The hope is that you gain some skills at dealing with loss, not that you get loss out of the way. Okay. So that's, tell me more about those skills. And I guess some of that would be mental things. I actually have a, a question, which I, I hope it's not too impersonal a no. question, which I think about, you know, ways that I cope with challenging stuff. And, and one of them's exercise. And you're in good shape, mm. right? It looks like, you know, yeah. you're not sitting here eating a lot of fast food. And so that was going to be my question. Yep. was how from your mental health, but that's tied into the bigger question. So yeah. let me not answer questions for you. <laughs> Talk me through the skills that you learned and how, can we all learn to deploy these through the tough stuff? Well, I think for me, what's lighting up as you say that, Dave, the big, let me go back a little bit. When you said you use the word overcome and it's a good word, I get it. But I also think part of the trick is not, is actually pulling up a chair next to your pain, not trying to kick it out of your life. Because one of the great things about being taken down, like what I like this phrase, you're, taken down to the studs by an illness like that or trauma like that or disability or an accident like that you know you are just you are reacquainted with you know like i had to get reacquainted with gravity the act of sitting up going to the bathroom again oh you are re you're starting from scratch in so many ways and the opportunity there is to start from scratch right do it a little differently you know and or just consciously to be aware of it and so one of the things that became it was sort of like the snowball like i drive started I started dropping the adjectives, good, bad, but it's just like, did it exist? Did I feel something? If that something was pain or pleasure was less, less important than did I feel anything? And so I started becoming enamored of having a body of being alive because I realized that this body could feel things and this life, I could have an emotional experience. And I lost some of the good, bad kind of thinking. Like these are good emotions versus bad emotions. Like the labeling was yeah. gone, just the, the labels awareness. Were gone, just was the there. awareness and just the sensation. And I tried to some degree, I was fascinated by the fact that I could feel pain. I was even happy that I could feel pain. One of the things I'm proud of is that I can, that I'm still, I'm a softy. I don't, I have not, I've tried very hard to not scar over too much. So one of the things that can happen when you have a, some hard knocks like that is you develop a lot of scar tissue, emotional, otherwise, and then you're just numb. You're yeah. not feeling anything. And that it's sort of like the, when we're talking about invulnerability and is not a strength, like numbness to get through something and through with numbness might be effective, but that's not necessarily something I would admire or seek. I hear the word compartmentalizing in particularly in professions mm -hmm. and care, like where there's a lot higher perhaps caregiver burden mm -hmm. so you're seeing just difficult shit or you're dealing with emotions mm -hmm. or you're you've got an angry client and i was having this conversation about what it means to be professional 
And I almost wonder if that is wrapped up in that, you know, you're able to function despite all of the bad stuff. Yeah. And it's really a, a, almost a training. It becomes yes. autonomic. But there's always a sense of the walled offness about that, like an abscess getting walled off by, yeah. by fibrous tissue that's tied into the numbness that you're mentioning there, that ultimately that doesn't sound like that's a good coping strategy. Mm-hmm. Is there a middle ground? Do you have a sense of a middle ground between, and I guess that links into the, you know, the burnout that caregivers often struggle with mm-hmm. and sometimes tragically. So I'm sure in both of our fields, have you been able to find a way to maintain your groundedness? Mm-hmm. your not get washed away by the emotional nature of mm-hmm. what you do. Cause I think actually what you do is more mm-hmm. mentally demanding than working with, with sick animals. Mm, maybe, but differently. But yeah, there is a craft to this. I mean, so here I am advocating that we feel our feelings, essentially. You know, that you that you save the energy of pushing away hard things because hard things are coming and you're, you're going to use your energy better if you learn how to roll with it and work with it. Like judo. And not, yeah, judo, dear, it's, a good, it's a good analogy. And, and again, I think this idea of working with fear, working with pain, rather than trying to put it, kick it out of your life, it's the same with chronic illness. When you have an acute illness, you know, there's some some intelligence to just biting, you know, gripping your teeth and getting through it. And maybe you'll come out alive, maybe you'll be fixable and you can get back to where you were. As soon as an illness or something is not going away, it's chronic like our mortal nature. It's not going away. So you're much better served having a relationship to it than trying to kick it out. And you're going to waste a lot of energy trying to kick mortality out of your life. So given that these things were real, not that I would ever wish for them, but because they are, it just felt right that my, it felt right for me to expand myself to accommodate these realities rather than just narrow myself, which I think is the norm. You narrow your focus, you reduce your world so that it becomes tolerable and digestible. Mm. I'd rather go the other way. I'd rather expand my capacity to feel things and move things and to suffer horrible losses and, and experience some triumphs. I want the full Monty. I want to, ex- I want to be bigger. I don't want yep. to be smaller. How, does that make sense? It does. I'm curious how you do how you go about that. Yeah, so I think part is just getting in your head like that fear, pain, death, illness, these are not failures. These are not you take the shame off so that we're not we don't overdevelop an allergy to these hard things. Right. So I think that's part of it is normalizing it, seeing them as nothing to be embarrassed about, but variations on themes that we all go through, like I was saying earlier. I think that's step one, because otherwise we're left to kind of hate ourselves for being depressed, hate ourselves for being sick, be embarrassed that we died. That, to me, is a real tragedy. Yeah. And so skim that junk off the top and you're in a much better place. So that's step one, I would say, or I don't know, I wouldn't say step one, this is not a stepwise <laughs> thing, but that's a big piece of it. Yep. And then I think from there, you start realizing too, you can start seeing relationships form. Like I was saying about vulnerability and strength. The same thing with compassion. You know, one of the things that was so beautiful in my experience being a patient was I got to see how my friends responded and how strangers responded to me and all the kindness that was showed me. It was beautiful. The compassion that was showed me. And especially with my friendships, like, I knew my friends were wonderful people. I knew mm. my family were wonderful. You know, I, I knew these guys. I loved them, sure. But it was an untested. We needed the suffering to evince the compassion. Yep. And you start seeing that relationship that and it makes me hate suffering a little less. 
because it was the suffering that revealed my friends, Tommy, Pete, Jonathan, others, to reveal themselves as incredibly loving, compassionate people. They had not had the excuse to show that to me. Yeah. So you start seeing these little relationships between the pain and the pleasure, one, or however you want to put it, the, the good and the bad, the hard and the easy, however you want to phrase it. And that they, these things need each other. So in some ways, there you've deshamed it. And now you've moved into something even curious, like curious and opportunistic about pain, because you know that that pain's going to end. It's going to feel really, really great. And if you know that if you're miserable and falling apart, and someone helps scoop you up, you're going to love that person even more. So you start playing those things out, and then you can't even hate your suffering anymore. And then magically, you're not suffering so much anymore. It became a vehicle, yeah. not the thing. Yeah. There's a lot of different directions I kind of want to go on. You mentioned reframing, and I think that's the process you've almost used there. You mentioned yes. labels. Where else can, can we use that? Where do you see people framing things badly, storytelling badly? And that's not necessarily a, a death-related thing, but just generally a life-related thing. I almost feel like that's that's almost enemy number one for just about every mm. fixable non-physical woe that's out there is this sort of bad framing. I'm searching around for the question in there. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I guess the, the your insight into, you know, mm. what have you observed as poor framing and yeah. the impact of that? Well, let me actually also, let me see if I can go back to a question set uh, you asked a moment ago, Dave. Because I w- want to get this in, and maybe it segues well to. I think one of the other hazards as you go along this way is you can become seduced by illness. You can become seduced by suffering. You can, can be seduced by hardship for for the beauty and love that does come with it. And blah blah blah. You can start if you're not careful. You can become weirdly attached to your misery. I've seen that temptation in myself and in others. So there is a caution about how to right size and proportion yourself before these forces. Ooh, because that's an interesting word. Yeah, I love right that. Size. I love that phrase very much, and the idea of proportioning, uh, proportionality. You can be somewhat consumed by your own sensations, and there's other things happening in your own life, and even the good things that are coming your way because of it. It can drive, in a way, a different but just as potent sort of egoistic. Uh, you can become very attached in a not a very functional way to some things that you need to let go of. So, so part of the trick of this is, yeah, you know, you got to lean into yourself, but if you keep, if that's all you do, you're going to become just another selfish bastard. And who's just can think of only of themselves, even if it's themselves in pain or whatever else. Yeah. So part of the, part of the work of this is then leaving these rehab settings, leaving these acute settings and moving back out into the world uh, that works at a different pace and time and moving to the chronic world, you also have to let go of some of these sources of misery, even as they had been rich lessons. And you can't be overly committed to your own pain. So I guess I just mentioned that. Like there is this, because you reference and I think it's really important for our for all of us, especially in these fields, that we acknowledge the hard stuff, but don't come overly identified with it either. There's an agility that needs to set up. That's where I feel like it's really important. When I know that I'm clicking, when I'm firing on all cylinders, is when I can move, when I'm in a sort of a neutral place in myself so that I have equal access to joy, 
as I have access to suffering or sorrow that I can, that I'm very nimble emotionally. And I can, depending on what's going on, I can move between what seem like conflicting emotions pretty quickly. That tells me I'm not overly identified with life has to be great. I can't tolerate if it's not, or life is horrible and I'm just going to revel in that. I need to be able to move between those. Both things feel like the, the balance point feels like it's in the middle, which is the now, not in the past or in the future. It's just a, a groundedness, a, a sense of that. Is that is that accurate? I think so. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, you're bringing up the time piece. Yeah, right. Yeah. There, there is there's so much nuance to this. Yes. So your relationship to space, your relationship to time, your relationship to things you don't understand, all of these come into question. Relationship to the material, your body, the limitations of your body. You start seeing the this idea that we're autonomous. The individuals, you know, we are such porous beasts. You know, we are not. The idea of self is it's, is a construct. Anyway, we can go. So there's so many different layers to this, but you're bringing up a big one, which is the relationship to time. Yeah. And I think oftentimes that becomes a matter of fear, like fear of the future of what could happen to me. Yes. So we look ahead with fear and we look behind ourselves with regret. And I think regret of I think of regret as a fear of the past in a way. Yeah, and they're very much the same sort of sensations that can grip you and lock you down and be paralyzing. And yet, we humans are left with this capacity to imagine the future and to relive the past. So I don't. I'm not interested in kicking anything out of our experience. So those things are real, but there again, they need to be right sized proportionally. The power of the present moment is way bigger, it's way huger, and but yet it somehow can be in our internal experience the smallest piece of the puzzle. So there's some retraining that needs to happen. So circling back to the coffee making, is that an exercise? Is that a, a ritual's part of being present on, on the Zen Hospice Project? Yeah, that beautiful ritual mm-hmm. you know, when I and I don't know if a guest is the right word or mm-hmm. a patient. What the we call them guests. Guests. Yeah. So when a guest would. Transition, I think, was the the words you you guys used, which is very beautiful in itself. But you'd have that the flower ritual, mm-hmm. the cookie ritual as well. I, I just love that. I have to make banana bread and take it <laughs> to my practice when I go up there. <laughs> what other rituals do you build into? I'm just curious. Having seen the coffee ritual, mm-hmm. that feels like that's that's a thing for you. And in my, I have a ping pong ball chaos mind, which is fun mm-hmm. and beautiful and also infuriating in ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that looks really nice. I'm like, you would suck at doing that ritual. <laughs> what other rituals do you have and in what areas of your life? We talk about mm-hmm. exercise as well. That's probably a ritual that, that I stick to the most mm-hmm. uh, closely and enjoy. Yep. Um, but talk me through some of your rituals. Well, you know, it's for one, I only use the word ritual when, when like when you and I are talking, you know, it, it's, otherwise it's a label really, isn't yeah, it? But it is. It's a good one. It's just, it's just to call out in so many ways. I feel like as you're asking me that question, I realize, and like, I don't sit down and think that I am starting a ritual, you know, it's like, of course. And, but I'm all for that too. I mean, people do, there are truly rituals, especially in spiritual traditions that have these beginning, middle and end. For me, it's more like it's approaching my all of my daily life with some sort of awareness and watching at some sort of observational stance of watching myself move through space, watching myself deal with time. And it's sort of an observational position. And I take that 
often throughout my day. And so when I'm doing something, I have bought into this long ago, like if you're going to do something, do it right. Kind of feels like, even though I do shit wrong all the time, (laughs) but I still aspire to that, especially when I'm trying to honor something. So whether like a tea leaf, I have such regard for this camellia plant and that, and for all the care that's gone into cultivating it and to developing its tastes over centuries, et cetera. I just want to honor all that's in this leaf. And so by trying to do the leaf justice, I end up treating it ritualistically, but that is I treat it carefully, right? you know, and I want my devotion to it to show in how I handle it, how I, it's just a way of honoring its existence. And I think it's a beautiful way to be. And it doesn't, you don't need to be, have robes and chant and have a candle. You can just approach the rest of your life this way, whether it's your bike or a stranger, you can just approach them with curiosity and veneration. And just because they exist at all, that's powerful enough to, to have value. Yeah. The word has a color to it, which maybe isn't mm-hmm. to everybody's liking and that sort of spirituality touch, but it's yeah. almost a, it's a, a presence and a purple purpose purposefulness yeah that it allows you to access something else yes which again feels like gratitude yes it feels like gratitude it feels like humility it feels like Mm. i am in service to the tea leaf in a way as much as it's serving me the feels exactly that's that's super right on dave i connection is the thing and a connection to other people connection to animals connection to things I, i don't much care connection to just connection, please. When I'm working with patients, I, you know, find something to care about, find something to feel connected to. And it doesn't really much matter what it is. That for me was why I got into medicine mm-hmm. for a lot of people. It's for the animals. For me, it was the connection and to be part of a community. Mm-hmm. And it's why I could do all day long, just doing vaccine appointments. There's a ritualism to the vaccine appointment, which can be a bit dull but there's that mm-hmm. conversation the story that's always amazing yeah Maisie's Maisie's doing her defense of the mm-hmm. realm bit right now well let me just say one more thing too David you're asking me you got me thinking about what do I approach in my daily life from a ritualistically getting out of bed getting into bed I start my days I watch my brain starts with usually with regrets and negative thoughts and I almost deal with those ritualistically I sort of expel them and I get out of bed and start moving in a certain way and I sit with them for a minute over my tea and Can I you say more about them. that I for whatever way I'm wired I just start it from a negative frame most of the time and I have to and I have to see it for what it is and I have to sort of expel it not shame it but sort of play it out so I watch these early thoughts in a day I watch, I purposefully don't attach to them. I just watch them come through me and I let them, I try to let them go. I let them come, I let them go. And if I do that, the days where I'm able to do that before I jump into action with email or anything else, I I have a much different experience that day. And similarly, at the end of the day, when I get into bed, I will sort of consciously think about the day and let go of what, try to let go of what had happened and learn some things. And similarly, I almost approach bathing and showering uh, and the body in something of a ritualistic way. That is without judgment, I think, but with love and honor and some and curiosity. That those feel ritualistic. How I've learned to relate to this body that you know most people wouldn't choose to have, but I've come to I've come to love yep. through this sort of approach. This what we might call a ritualistic approach. So anyway, those are some thoughts on the last question that, that does, came up. Does that look like 
I mean, in terms of ways, does that look like when you have those thoughts, do you journal about them or do you hop on your bike? And I'm sure you don't just hop on your bike mm. either. It's probably more mm. complex. Not too far off. I will hop on my bike, but now that Maisie, my dog, is, is getting older and arthritic, I used to take her on mountain bike rides all the time. Yep. But for me now, it's just walking her just down the street or in the woods. This is, for me, my meditation, being with her out in the woods and it's a purely aesthetic experience. I'm not doing it for health. It's just the feeling of being with and keyed in with this animal and she with me. And it's not a word. It's it's a wordless place. And speaking of rituals, the ritual of fetch. Oh, my Lord. I mean, you know, that has a purpose unto itself. And I suppose that's what we're also driving at with the word ritual is that the experience has value in itself. It's not a means to the end. Like my ritualistic approach to making coffee or tea is not just to make a better cup of coffee or tea. It's an acknowledgement that every step along the way, that the process itself is a powerful thing and a value. Same with I'm playing fetch with Maisie. Like there's nothing particularly exotic about fetch. Throw a ball, bring it back, throw it again, blah, blah. You know, it's like, it's kind of mind-numbingly boring in its way, but it's a powerful connection I have with Maisie and I can do it for hours. Time stands still. I don't experience time when I'm doing this. And I think that's another fallout of ritualistic. It kind of puts time in its place too. So for me, getting out with the dog is my has been my lifesaver ever since my accident. And I had a service dog for 11 years and that's been a huge piece of my daily life. Just want to change this direction. And one question crops up in my brain is, we have a difficult thing, but a beautiful tool at our disposal in euthanasia. Mm-hmm. I wonder just what, how you felt about euthanasia and human medicine. You know, I think we've all had Mm -hmm. relatives who we watched suffer and certainly watching Endgame, it was heart wrenching. Like I had tears just falling out down my face watching and you could see the, not the opposite, but the, the different perspectives from the different family members had and the angst that was being generated and the conflict between those two areas and you must see things in your, your field who you think, yeah, I wish I could just push stop for this person mm-hmm. and they're ready to push stop. But do you have any, but it's clearly such a complicated, nuanced thing again. What are your opinions on that as a, to have access to that as humans, like the yeah. Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland? Yeah. It's a really big and important question. I had the experience, I got to meet with the lap of love guys with Danny and Mary and it was very, it was interesting talking with them about this. Yeah. Because, Clearly, it's it's a force for good in the veterinary world. I don't think I don't know how controversial a statement that is, but it certainly feels. I think we would all one hundred percent agree with yeah. that. And why? So why is it different for us humans? And I don't have a great answer for that, but it's I have a curiosity about it. I have the the cases now in California since twenty sixteen. It is legal to get a. Uh, come on, Mace, jump on up here, girl. Come on. <laughs> she wants to get up fast. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> I wasn't being very uh, <laughs> dog empathetic. Um, was like, she's like, come on, buddy, move out of the way. <laughs> well, you're sitting in her spot. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can see from the hair. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if they can hear that's on the microphone. <laughs> anyway, okay, sorry. So, um, curl up there. There is undoubtedly, so one of the things that I and many others in this world are trying to say is that death is not the enemy. Death may be hard, yes. may be spectacularly depressing, maybe whatever. I don't, it's many, many things, but it, hating it is about the same thing as hating life, as hating yourself. So I don't recommend it. 
So find, trying to find some way to have a relationship with this thing that won't leave you, it seems like very important, like we've discussed. And that relationship can look any which way. And some people respond with a little bit like, um, like I've been involved with a few cases here. I started to mention physician-assisted suicide or aid in dying is the language of it now. And the cases I've been involved with in humans, we talk about, we sanction this expedited death if someone is suffering enough, if, they're, if their suffering is intractable, they're miserable enough, then we'll say, okay, well, then you can have this lethal medicine. Yes. So the currency is you have to be brutally, uh, untractably miserable. Right. And you have to prove that to a couple of doctors to get the medicine. It's kind of a, it's a clunky process. The cases I've been involved at, what was, what was really powerful to see was, yeah, these people played the game. They you know, sort of framed it around misery. But to a person, what they, were, they weren't in a flight from life. They weren't in a flight from suffering. They were actually exercising one more act of will. Like it was a, it was a meaningful huh. choice for them. Yes. It was like saying, and sometimes it was a little bit of a F you to death. Like, oh yeah, I'm a, basically I'm going to quit before getting you've, fired. You've taken, <laughs> you know, essentially. You've taken everything else from me. I'm not yeah. letting you take this. Exactly. So some of maybe as that, but. One way or another, the choice can be a positively meaningful one, not just the least horrible choice in front of you. And so that was just interesting to see that people can make meaning from this experience. And anyway, I, there's a lot to say about the law and why humans do a funny little dance on this. But let me just say, some of my colleagues are against aid and dying laws, that death needs to be this thing that we keep at bay, this thing that we do not embrace. I disagree with it. I disagree. I think we need to embrace life and part of life is death. And so we don't get to pick and choose. And it has felt right. These cases I've been involved with both for me, clearly the client or patient and the family too. So the folks who, whose loved one had an expedited death with aid and dying very often grieve a little bit better mm-hmm. because they felt like perhaps because they felt like they participated in this final agency, this their love was so big that they could help participate in their loved one's death because that's what they needed and wanted. It was like a, it, there's a selflessness to it that has set people up for grief very well in my experience. So there's something to this, but I will say, I guess one more point, we can talk about this for hours, but one more point from where I sit is I am, I do, the word control freaks me out a little bit. For me, I'm very interested in all the things that we can't control. But I understand that that's a powerful force for some folks. I will say, though, that from a developmental point of view, there is something to playing out a life all the way to the end and not expediting the the end. I mean, I think a lot of us, a lot of folks who say, who advocate for these laws have this idea that death is going to be so miserable and suffering that that they want a way out of that. And I understand that. Okay. But I also don't want us to miss out on... When things happen that you would never choose, a lot of like we've talked about with my injuries, I would never choose to lose three limbs, but because it happened and I was forced to deal with it and reapportion myself to the world around me, that taught me a ton. I grew a ton from that. I would, and because I would never choose it. So I hate the idea of shortchanging the experience humans might have as they approach their death mm-hmm. by yielding to it, by uh, submitting to it being whatever it's going to be. There can be a really powerful developmental aspect to that. And if we just help each other get off the planet the second things get a little shifty, 
that would be a problem. We really rob ourselves of enormous growth exactly. moments. So what were the good came out? What were the best things that you experienced because of your action? You've mentioned the love, just the seeing that, that relationship of people who you cared deeply about. That was a good thing. And I asked the question as much as anything, because... <laughs> you know these guys. Hey, easy, easy. <laughs> easy to say hi. Somebody's just entered Maisie's turf. All right. Oh, yeah. You let them know. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's putting on a show for your game. She knows these guys. Anyway, I know. okay. she, she, I mean, she's playing to her audience <laughs> yeah. very well, I have to say. So, so, um, sorry. Where so, were you? so the question was, the motivation behind the question is, I know there are people listening to this podcast having a difficult time just now who are mm-hmm. unable to access the answer or possibly even access the question, what's good about this, at this being the terrible demon in their life or whatever the heck's going on with them. Can you shine a light on what what was good about your injury? And I think the love that your friends demonstrated was was yeah up there. Well, the, that's right. The love that got shown to me by friends, family, professionals, strangers was profound and overwhelming. I mean, I in a way, I got to see who would come to my own funeral. I got to see who showed up. I got to see different sides of people. I got to see different sides of myself. I got to persist. You know, one of the things about my experience, we have to be careful. We can't over-extrapolate. I survived. I have had years. I'm now 30 years into this. You know, if you had asked me these questions two years in, you would have gotten a different. I mean, I've had a lot of time to play this out and reflect on it and see it and choose a profession that allowed me to work with it. And I mean, so let's be careful about over extrapolating from my experience. But I would say for me personally, the things that have come to me that were so important were this, this big, big love. And and also the challenge to myself to learn to love myself in a different way. Even when I was stinky, smelly, you know, ugly, couldn't move, whatever. I was in some sort of miserable, pathetic state oftentimes. But part of that self-love, and that's an ongoing battle, is reminding ourselves that we're the ones who command our language. And even as we choose these words of pitiful, ugly, whatever, those are our words. We need to all get better at commanding our language and not just absorbing what people, these sort of, is taking them as givens. So that's one point is you, you as a human being, you're the one, you're the one who gets to frame your situation. That's a powerful talent we have. And I'm not sure our animal friends have that, that we can, cho- we can find perspective by choosing the frame in which we see ourselves. We can come up with a worldview that accommodates ourselves, that, that, we can come up with a way of looking ourselves in the world where we actually belong, even when the signals are pointing the other direction. That's all very powerful and beautiful. So I, the love, the reframing, the power of perspective, the responsibility and the right I have to judge myself and to frame myself, those are huge, huge, valuable lessons. The responding to loss and limitation in a creative way that the sort of adaptive and disability world is so good at we frame disability around loss and you wouldn't ever want to be disabled. Everything's less than, but the truth is disabled people are the most creative people around. They, you have a limitation, you find a workaround. That's how we work. So becoming acquainted with the power of limitations, the power of the really important, the aesthetic importance of just feeling anything at all. 
So those are, this is the sort of a suite of lessons that I've gained. And this point of contact that's universal, I can meet someone across the world who has ostensibly very different life than mine, and we'll find something in common because this is the plane we're operating on. I'm looking for, I'm looking at life through this plane, and it it welcomes everything. So that's great, yay for me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's still a daily grind to kind of to live these things out. So I just want to say that's what I've been lucky to find, and a lot of patients and families have been lucky to find versions of these lessons themselves too. But just to say, it's also possible, and there have been moments along the way where I have these sort of, the lessons, the beauty, were also out of reach. The meaning, the purpose were totally out of reach. I couldn't honestly find them. I was honestly lost. I was honestly in free fall. And that's part of the experience it's a miserable one or a very difficult one, but that's where I guess a little bit of faith comes in, like that you're not just your pain, that the world isn't, that life is not just this body. You know, there's some sort of, like this is back to spirituality, that may be a faith, that may be a hunch, but I've come to believe it, not even believe it, just to feel it. So I think this kind of, this kind of redemption is accessible to all of us, but I also don't want to be Pollyannish. If death came to me, uh, the, my, uh, the end of my life came to me when I was in a particularly depressive spell. I wouldn't be ending my life with a nice bow on it. I would be. I wouldn't have all this perspective that I could articulate like we're talking. I, no, I, I would be. That would have to be okay. That would have to be. I'd have to have a worldview where that accommodates misery, misery and pain and fear. So. I guess I'm rambling here, Dave, but I guess what I want, I'm trying, I'm trying to find a way to acknowledge that you can't always get to this point of perspective and none of us can all the time. And somehow that has to be okay too. And I guess if I can just take away the shame, if I just can take away hating myself for not having the answers, that's why I think probably my favorite human capacity is forgiveness. Like, I can forgive myself for being miserable. I can forgive myself for not finding a way through. For me, that's probably the bottom line for me is forgiveness. So I'm conscious of our time a little bit. I wanted to, I think I could ask you questions for like the next six years, let alone the next hour. Your work with the hospice project is behind you. Mm-hmm. What's, in, what's in front of you? You have your book. Mm-hmm which I freaked my dad out so badly with that thing. He didn't mention anything about it. And I was, I was just researching for the interview uh-huh. and I'd left that out on the side and I, I had um, being mortal <laughs> to go Andy's book on the side as well. And I was like, and I didn't notice at all because like it was just chaos. Cause I, you know, that's what my house looks like. And my dad came down and just saw him looking at this thing. Thinking, Is he okay? <laughs> Is there something I need to know here? So this is such a powerful message. And, you know, you have the uh, documentary mm-hmm. on Netflix, Endgame. Your TED Talk is incredibly inspiring. I'm just going to get you the title of that. You probably know the title of the it TED already. Talk? It's a, yeah, so it's a, what, I don't want to butcher it. What really matters at the end of life is yeah, that the right title. Just by the way, TED Talk people titled that. I, my title for it that I submitted was, was not whether, but how. In other words, like we don't, it's not whether we die. It's, it's more like how, how we die. Yeah. So anyway, that, but yeah, what really matters at the end of life is right. the title is given. Yes. Okay. And the book is a beginner's guide to the end. Right. Which I am, uh, and it's actually, it's, it's almost a, a manual on how to, yeah. And it's, it's, there's something confronting in it, but also 
something, there's a peace mm. in it as well, which is coming across so much in our conversation as well. How are you taking your message out? This is a message the world mm-hmm. just needs to hear yeah. way more of. So yeah. what are you, are you working on doing that just now? How do people learn more about you? Like, I'm sure this is the start of a conversation or a thought yeah. process for a lot of people, I hope. Well, lovely. I mean, so, right. So my job is moving more and more out of the clinical realm and more in the public engagement and education realm, more and more. And that's what's been going on the last several years. And it's now sort of complete. I'm actually closing my clinic at UCSF next month. So I won't be technically practicing medicine for now. My work is moving beyond sort of outside of clinical medicine and out into the world of education, public engagement, et cetera. Because I do think that we're sitting on messages. It's not just my message. This is the message of palliative care, of hospice, of humanists, of spiritualists. This is a pretty universal, there's a lot of universal stuff in here. Yes. And so I want to participate in that. It does feel like we're living in a time that's gripped by fear, where it's very hard to find the truth of a situation where we're going in an opposite direction of all this love that we've been talking about. And yep. forgiveness is hard to come by, et cetera, et cetera. So it does feel important for us to be speaking out now about these kinds of principles, sort of an ethos. So that's what I want to do. So so yes, there's the book out in the world, and we hopefully we'll keep pushing that, and hopefully we can get that into the hands of people who need it. And I'm letting go of clinic for now, but what I am just now starting is this thing that I'm calling the Center for Dying and Living. So we have a little website. It's just a little homemade website, a placeholder for now. But you can visit us there and sign up if you want to come along for the ride. And again, the, the URL is simply thecenterfordyingandliving.org. I don't know if that title will stick in part because it's just so darn long. But the idea, I think, of the, in the cheeky title is first confront the fact that you're mortal and then you can really start living. And in a way that death becomes, in this way, death comes before the life. Death Um, gives you release whilst you're still alive. Yeah, that does that too. So the idea of the center is basically we're just starting to build it. It's a nonprofit. We're just raising money for it to get it off the ground. But essentially, eventually it wants to be a huge archive, a huge library. Because right now people are left to Google their disease and they're met with such <laughs> junk and such and infiltrated terror. And, and, and terror. And then and you have to unlearn. So we have all this access to information, but we don't have a lot of access to knowledge. So we want to start a curated library of clinical sciences, social sciences, the arts, religion, policy, and really round out the subject. So if you came to our site eventually and searched your, for your illness or whatever it was, you would be met with a, a curated load of information and knowledge, but really rounded out. So you might, if you went to our site and you put in cancer, you might find a bunch of artwork that how, how cancer has been handled in the visual arts, for example, not just the prescription for medications. So anyway, so the big picture for the Center for Dying and Living is to be this curated library, this archive eventually. It's going to take us a long time and many millions of dollars to build that. Along the way, though, we're starting with just harvesting stories directly from patients and caregivers and clinicians and trying to create a little community and a latticework where we can all be feel seen and heard and bear witness and learn from each other. So right now, the website is, is just has, we're just, you know, anyone who wants to submit a story, a good one, a bad one, a hard one, an easy one, doesn't much matter. Again, choose your adjective. We would love that. And so hopefully we'll have thousands of stories, the subjective plane, the experience of actually dealing with these things so we can, and we can put those up, we can see them, we can learn from each other. And then from there, that'll form the basis to, of the library. We'll, we'll swarm these stories with resources and build out the library over time. 
So that's my new baby, the Center for Dying and Living dot org. And otherwise, I'll keep doing the public speaking and pushing the book and seeing people informally. Now I sort of do palliative care coaching rather than palliative care clinic. Right, right. Well, I have to say thank you on one level for sharing your story. That time it influenced influenced me as a leader, as a clinician, as a human. I think it was a a nudge in the direction and a good one. So thank you for that. Um, thank you for sharing your story. You know, that humanist, that connection, there's such power in those words. And thank you for having me to your beautiful abode. And um, I can't think of a, a, a better place. And your cat just walked past as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, too I noticed that. Was that a squamous cell carcinoma? Yep, you got I, it. I saw in the on video there was a little eye. Yep. And I thought, <laughs> I feel like I need to reach out. <laughs> then I thought, that's actually a couple of years ago. There's, it's probably been dealt with by then yeah. one way or another. So, you got it. BJ, thank you so much. This was amazing. We're going to link everything up in the show notes. And um, I want to say to VMX or Western, like, you need to get BJ as your keynote speaker right now. <laughs> like, this guy's got so much that we can all learn from. So, sir, thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Dave. It's such a joy. And Maisie likes you too. I wish your audience could see her right now with her I, head on your bag i'm gonna get a selfie if that's okay <laughs> that's awesome. she's gorgeous she's she gorgeous. likes you pal <laughs> she's accepted you she's not eating you thank you Maisie. appreciate that all right thank you pal thank you so much for tuning into today's show wasn't bj just the most amazing guest i really hope that you enjoyed that episode and something in there helps you out in your journey in veterinary medicine and if you're enjoying it don't forget to tell your friends you can do that verbally or you can shout us out on the social medias you can also leave a review on itunes all things gratefully received and finally don't forget to also check out and show some love to today's sponsor that is lap of love You can go check out their resources for how to do end-of-life care better and learn much more about their work, how they can help your practice at lapoflove.com. Until next time, friends, be safe, be well, and be happy.